Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to the works of Stephen King. Need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order anytime, and there's always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Circle Opens. Today, we will be talking about The Mangler. The Mangler is a short story written by Stephen King, and it was originally published in the December 1972 issue of Cavalier Magazine. Later, it was also included in some 1980 anthologies, the 21st Pan Book of Horror Stories, Arbor House Celebrity Book of Horror Stories in 1982, and Demons in 1987. This was something that I didn't know when I was researching the short story. Apparently, this was adapted into a film in 1995 directed by horror movie legend Toby Hooper and starring Robert England of the Freddy Krueger franchise. There were also two sequels, one in 2001 called The Mangler 2, and another in 2005 called The Mangler Reborn. Dun dun. So I've never seen these. I didn't know they existed. Um, I did reach out on Twitter to see if anyone had watched them, and I did get a few responses. One from Stephen King might recommend Twitter account at might. Stephen said, I saw the mangler in the theater with high expectations. I have no idea all of these years later what heightened my expectations except maybe dumb youth. Another from Minstrel of Horror at Minstrel of Horror said, They're an interesting series. Rewatched them a few months ago. They all have their moments, but the first is the best, like most King films with sequels. Do King films have a lot of sequels? I guess if you're thinking of um, Children of the Corn, that kind of stuff, I don't really consider those Stephen King sequels because he didn't write them. They're just, you know, money grabs in my opinion. But And I got another response from Catherine Ann at K underscore Ann underscore writes. She said, I have at least the first one. It's almost so bad it's fun, but it doesn't quite get there, which is a real shame. And she did write a review for The Mangler of 1995 at CatherineAnnWriting.com. I read the review earlier this morning, and it was a really good review. I'm glad that I read it. I'm not sure I have any desire now to see the movie, but definitely check out her blog. And then I got another response from Matthew at MattC665. He's a cool dude, one of my friends. And he said, only the first one, it's pretty terrible. So thank you guys, because I will not be watching The Mangler unless I run out of material and need to read or rather watch Stephen King adaptations, the horrible ones. So that's the opinions I got on The Mangler. And it does not seem to be a very well liked short story. I don't want to say people hate it, but it it feels like kind of middle of the road in terms of um, where it lands with people's rankings with his short stories and writing. So I'm now thinking I should have went over these movies and the like after I talked about the short story because I feel like I really 
am pushing some very low expectations here for the Mangler before I even start talking about it. But we're going to jump into the Mangler and I'm going to start with a summary, but I'm going to read the first paragraph or so because I think this out of the entire story, this is the best part is the opening. And it starts. Officer Hunton got to the laundry just as the ambulance was leaving, slowly, with no siren or flashing lights. Ominous. Inside, the office was stuffed with milling, silent people, some of them weeping. The plan itself was empty. The big automatic washers at the far end had not even been shut down. It made Hunton very wary. The crowd should be at the scene of the accident, not in the office. It was the way things worked. The human animal had a built-in urge to view the remains. A very bad one, then. Hunton felt his stomach tightened, as it always did when the accident was very bad. Fourteen years of cleaning human litter from highways and streets and the sidewalks at the bases of very tall buildings had not been able to erase that little hitch in the belly, as if something evil had clotted there. John Hunton, the officer, speaks to the foreman, Mr. Stanner. Mrs. Frawley, an employee, had died. He leads Hunton, reluctantly, to the machine, a Hadley Watson Model 6 speed ironer and folder. The people who work there called it the Mangler. Hunton takes a long look at what is before him and does something he had never done in 14 years as a police officer. He vomits. Later that evening, he's speaking to a friend of his at home, Mark Jackson. He's describing the accident that he saw today. A woman named Adele Frawley got caught in the machine. Jackson isn't sure how that happened. The speed ironers have safety bars. Even if a woman gets a hand under it, the bar snaps up and stops the machine. Of course, that's how Jackson remembers it, and Hunton agrees, because it's a state law. But somehow, it still happened. The Hadley Watson Speed Ironer is described as a long rectangular box in shape, 30 feet by 6. At the feeder end, a moving canvas belt moved under the safety bar, up at a slight angle and then down. The belt carried the damp-dried, wrinkled sheets in continuous cycle over and under 16 huge, revolving cylinders that made up the main body of the machine, over 8 and under 8 pressed between them like thin ham between layers of superheated bread. Steam heat in the cylinders could be adjusted up to 300 degrees for maximum drying. The pressure on the sheets that rode the moving canvas belt was set at 800 pounds per square foot to get out every wrinkle. And Mrs. Frawley somehow had been caught and dragged in. The steel asbestos-jacketed pressing cylinders had been as red as barn paint, and the rising steam from the machine had carried the sickening stench of hot blood. Bits of her white blouse and blue slacks, even ripped segments of her bra and panties, had been torn free and ejected from the machine's far end thirty feet down. The bigger sections of cloth folded with grotesque and blood-stained neatness by the automatic folder. But not even that was the worst. The machine had tried to fold her, and she'd been taken out of the building in a basket. Clearly something was wrong with the machine, and if the owner had cut corners, he would be going to jail. Hunton thinks it's likely, given what he had seen, but 
After six state inspectors went over it, they found the machine itself to be clean, without a thing out of place. Hunton tries to find some way to explain it, but according to one inspector, the only way it could have conceivably happened was if Mrs. Frawley fell into the machine from above, but eyewitnesses put her on the ground. Hunton describes this as an impossible accident. The inspector admits to Hunton that he's inspected over a dozen speed ironers in the last five years. Some machines are incredibly bad shape, but they're just machines. This particular machine, however, it's a spook. If he'd found even one thing out of whack, one technicality, he would have ordered it shut down. And then he tells Hunton about something that happened two years ago in Milton. A man had an old icebox in his backyard. A woman called to say her dog had been caught in it and suffocated. The man, sorry for the dog, had to get rid of the icebox, so he took it in his pickup truck to the dump the next morning. That same afternoon, a woman in the neighborhood reported her son missing. The kid was found in the icebox at the dump. He was described as a smart kid, one who would no more play in an empty icebox than he would get into his car with a stranger. The next day, the caretaker went out to take the door off the icebox and found six dead birds inside. While he was brushing them out, the door closed on his arm and gave him quite a fright. The mangler at the Blue Ribbon Laundry struck the inspector the same way. The two looked at each other wordlessly in the empty inquest chamber, some six city blocks from where the Hadley Watson Model 6 Speed Ironer Enfolder sat in the busy laundry, steaming and fuming over its sheets. After about a week, Hunton and his wife visit Jackson's house, where Jackson brings up the possibility that the mangler was haunted. Hunton is confused, and Jackson hands him a newspaper describing a new incident at the Blue Ribbon Laundry. The story said that a steam line had let go on the large speed ironer at the Blue Ribbon Laundry, burning three of the six women working at the feeder end. The accident had occurred at 3.45 p.m. and was attributed to a rise in steam pressure from the laundry's boiler. One of the women, Mrs. Annette Gillian, had been held at the city receiving hospital with second-degree burns. What a funny coincidence. Hunton decides to go see Miss Gillian at the hospital, and she explains to him what had happened, describing the iron urn as breathing steam like a dragon. They never used to have so many accidents, the steam line breaking, poor Mrs. Frawley losing her life, but small things too, like a woman named Essie getting her dress caught in the drive chains but able to rip it out before it caused too much damage, bolts falling off, sheets getting caught in the folder, which never used to happen before. Essie thinks the mangler is cursed with bits of Adele Frawley, and this has all started after Sherry Olette cut her hand on a clamp. After that, the bolts started falling off. Adele happened a week later, as if the machine had tasted blood and found it liked it. Hunton goes to speak to Jackson again. Jackson wonders if the mangler is in fact not hunted, but possessed. Casting demons in contains common denominators, the most common being the blood of a virgin, and he thinks that could be Sherry Olette. More common denominators could be the hand of glory, 
which can be interpreted as the actual hand of a dead man, or one of the hallucinogenics used in connection with the witch's Sabbath, usually belladonna. It seems pretty crazy to think that all of those things could somehow get into the blue ribbon ironer. George Stanner, the foreman, lost his arm to the mangles soon after. He and the maintenance man Herb Dimmitt were performing the twice-yearly function of greasing the mangler's bearings when the machine turned on. No matter what Herb did, he couldn't get the machine to shut down. The off button, the fuses, Stanner's hand, his elbow, his arm, was being pulled into the mangler when Demet finally grabbed the fire axe. The machine was an abattoir now. The folder spat out pieces of shirt sleeves, scraps of flesh, a finger. Stanner gave a huge whooping scream, and Dement swung the axe up and brought it down in the laundry's shadowy lightness. Twice. Again, Stanner fell away, unconscious and blue, blood jetting from the stump just below the shoulder. The mangler sucked what was left into itself and shut down. Weeping, Dement pulled his belt out of its loops and began to make a tourniquet. After being told of the accident, Hunton and Jackson go to talk to Sherry Olette, who admits to them that she is a virgin waiting for her husband. This prompts Jackson and Hunton to discuss the possibility of an exorcism. The only issue is they don't know what's possessing the mangler. Jackson isn't sure what demon they're working with. He asks, is the one we're dealing with in the circle of Bubastus or Pan, Baal, or the Christian deity we call Satan? We don't know. If the demon had been deliberately cast, we would have had a better chance but this seems to be a case of random possession. Jackson explains that the rites of exorcism are horribly dangerous, and they need to take it seriously. They could make a mistake and destroy themselves. The demon is caught in the machinery, but give it a chance and it could get out, and it likes to kill. This is when Jackson and Hunton try to work out exactly what kind of demon they're working with. Obviously, Sherry's virgin blood was part of this dark magic recipe. Horse's hoof? Well, gelatin is made from horse's hoof, and jello was found under the ironer's sheet platform on the day Frawley died. Bat's blood? Well, it's a big place, so it's likely to have bats. One could have been trapped in the mangler. They roll out the hand of glory, because obviously no one had dropped a hand into the ironer before Frawley's death, and Belladonna was not indigenous to the area. Graveyard dirt would have to be a huge coincidence, since the nearest cemetery was five miles away. Given the primary and secondary elements they know about, Jackson is convinced the demon is pretty much bush league. It's going to slink away like a neighborhood bully. Hunton just wants to be sure it's nothing worse, but Jackson is confident. The hand of glory would have been really bad juju. Holy water wouldn't have stopped it. A demon caught up in conjunction with the hand of glory could eat a stack of Bibles for breakfast. We would be in bad shape messing with something like that at all. Better to pull the goddamn thing apart. It seems like everything fits well enough, and they're ready to perform this exorcism. 
Unfortunately, the two men don't know that Adele Frawley had been taking a tablet for her heartburn. Shortly before Sherry Olette cut her hand, Frawley had dropped an entire box of the tablets into the mangler by accident. And those tablets contained a chemical derivative of belladonna, known quaintly in some European countries as the Hand of Glory. There was a ghastly burping noise in the spectral silence of the blue ribbon laundry. A bat fluttered madly for its hole in the insulation above the dryers where it had roosted, wrapping wings around its blind face. It was a noise almost like a chuckle. The mangler began to run with sudden lurching grind, belts hurrying through the darkness, cogs meeting and meshing and grinding, heavy pulverizing rollers rotating on and on. It was ready for them. And so, Hunton and Jackson enter the blue ribbon laundry, and the mangler is awake, growing louder. Jackson begins to read while Hunton sprinkles the machine with holy water. They're both scared, but determined to go through with the exorcism. Hunton is scared that they may be wrong about the hand of glory, but Jackson is convinced that they're not, and so they begin. The mangler is not a fan of having holy water sprinkled on it, and smoke begins to rise from the belts. He began to read again, his voice rising over the sound of the machinery. He pointed to Hunton again, and Hunton sprinkled some of the host. As he did so, he was suddenly swept with the bone-freezing terror, a sudden vivid feeling that it had gone wrong, that the machine had called their bluff, and was the stronger. Sparks began to jump across the arc between the main motor and the secondary. The smell of ozone filled the air like the copper smell of hot blood. Now the main motor was smoking. The mangler was running at an insane, blurred speed. A finger touched to the central belt would have caused the whole body to be hauled in and turned to a bloody rag in the space of five seconds. The concrete beneath their feet trembled and thrummed. A main bearing blew with a searing flash of purple light, filling the chill air with the smell of thunderstorms, and still the mangler ran, faster and faster, belts and rollers and cogs moving at a speed that made them seem to blend and merge, change, melt, transmute. Hunton suddenly yells at Jackson to get away, but the mangler is pulling itself out of the ground like a dinosaur trying to escape a tar pit. Another fault line tore open. The mangler leaned toward them within an ace of being free of the concrete moorings that held it. It leered at them. The safety bar had slammed up and what Hunton saw was a gaping, hungry mouth filled with steam. Jackson and Hunton turn to run, and the mangler follows when Jackson stumbles and falls. It stood over Jackson, who lay on his back, staring up in a silent rictus of terror, the perfect sacrifice. Hunton had only a confused impression of something black and moving that bulked to a tremendous height above them both, something with glaring electric eyes the size of footballs, an open mouth with a moving, canvas tongue. He ran. Jackson's dying scream followed him. The inspector that Hunton had spoken to before, Roger Martin, answers his door to find Hunton there. There was blood oozing from the cut on his cheek, his face splattered with dirty gray specks of powdered cement. His hair had gone dead white. He explains that Jackson is dead and the mangler, it might get out. 
Martin picks up his phone, hoping that Hunton came soon enough. There was a faint, swelling noise from the east of the house, the way that Hunton had come. A steady, grinding clatter, growing louder. The living room window stood half open, and now Martin caught a dark smell on the breeze. An odor of ozone, or blood. He stood with his hand on the useless telephone as it grew louder, louder, gnashing and fuming, something in the streets that was hot and steaming. The blood stench filled the room. His hand dropped from the telephone. It was already out. So, the mangler. This story was okay. I certainly get the idea behind it, and it's not the only story that King has written about machinery and inanimate objects coming to life. I think I read somewhere that King once worked for an industrial laundry before he found success in writing, so maybe that helped inspire the story the same way his job at a textile mill inspired Graveyard Shift. It's definitely creepy and very gruesome, but I sort of disconnected from the story as soon as it ventured into demonic possession. Okay, maybe not even then, but when Hunton, a police officer, seems to fall pretty fast into thinking it could be demonic possession, and this... (laughs) He did remind me a little of Fox Mulder from The X-Files, just this desperate desire to believe without any question. There's really no proof, just this speculation from his friend who's not a police officer. And when Jackson was describing the Black Arts ingredients, horse's hoof suddenly becomes jello. A bat could live in the building somewhere and could fall into the mangler. I could buy the virgin blood, but that, along with Adele's over-the-counter medicine containing belladonna, how would she drop an entire box into the mangler? Was she trying to open it while working and it slipped out of her hand? I don't know. It's just a lot of specific things that were needed and it received, all within this one machine. Horse hooves, bat's blood, virgin blood, belladonna, hand of glory. (laughs) Um, Just really huge coincidences to make this work. And they just somehow know it. They just know this is what they're dealing with. Obviously, they got the hand of glory wrong, which doomed them at the end. But why would they think to try and exercise this on their own? Did they not think to approach a priest or a holy man? Has Jackson done this before? He obviously knows quite a bit about it. He knows it's dangerous. He knows what to do, what to say. Yet they don't have all the answers about what's happened in Blue Ribbon. Sure, they know about the cello, Sherry's blood, blah, 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 blah. And they just plain old guess about the bat. So they assume that the hand of glory isn't anything to worry about because no dead man's hands were dropped into the machine and Belladonna was indigenous to the area. They just assume this is random possession. Maybe somebody worked at the laundry uh, who is calling forth a demon. Maybe they did drop a dead man's hand (laughs) into the mangler. There's just very little information that they decide they know And they know what they're dealing with, and they're going to perform an exorcism. It's just 
this giant leap in logic for me, especially for a cop who should know better. Cops are supposed to be observant, perceptive. Um, aren't they supposed to think through these incidents to look for an answer, not just take a friend's advice and belief and go along with it? Sure, time is, is, a, is of the essence, but they seemed very reckless with their plan. And maybe that was the point, or maybe the story should have been a bit longer. I just don't know. So I guess I can dig a little deeper beneath the surface of this demonic possession story and view this as symbolizing how manufacturing had begun to take over jobs in the 60s and 70s from hardworking Americans. Okay, sure, the machine is literally eating people in this story, but I could see how one might see it as the machines are stealing jobs and livelihoods. If King were to write a similar story today, would he write about AI or a murderous robot? It's certainly been done already, but imagine King writing it from his point of view. I suppose one could point out that he did this with Cell, but I think it could be done better. There are parts of the story I did enjoy, mostly the very beginning, and when the foreman loses his arm. The rest just felt a bit muddled, and I found myself very easily distracted from the story when it wasn't dealing with the mangler, when it was just Jackson and Hunton trying to miraculously put together what kind of demonic possession it was under, etc., etc. I wanted more of the mangler. I wanted more death and <laughs> destruction and loss of limbs. I didn't hate the story, but I didn't really love it either. So I guess that it's somewhere in between. And out of five stars, I'd give it a two, maybe a two and a half, but I'm probably just going to stick with a two. I'm usually willing to overlook various holes in logic when it comes to horror, but I just didn't understand Jackson and Hunton being so damn stupid. <laughs> it just that bugged me. And I just felt like it was King working hard to explain to the writer or the reader um, how these two men somehow understand and know what the mangler had taken in to make it possessed by some demon. And while I did appreciate the imagery of the mangler coming to life and pulling itself up out of the cement like some, you know, machine monster, it still kind of felt silly to me, a little campy, um, not scary. But I did like the end, which is something that has it's a common denominator right now with night shift i have even if i'm lukewarm on the story like i am with the mangler i still like the ending i have liked the endings of every single story thus far so i will give the mangler a two and if you guys have read the mangler and you liked it or you had some other interpretation feel free to email at the circle closes at gmail.com or find me on social media at the circle opens I'd love to hear your opinions. Um, even if you've read the or watched the movies, I would love to hear what you guys think of those too. So that's it for me with The Mangler. I know I owe you guys an episode reviewing The Stand. I've fallen behind on writing those reviews and we're about to watch the eighth episode tonight. So I think I'm just going to maybe 
wait and do one huge review for the last four episodes. And I have thoughts, you guys, and I'm eager to talk to you about them. So um, let me know how you guys are enjoying the show. You can, uh, again, email me or find me on social media, or you can check out thecircleopens.com. It does need quite a bit of an update, which I will be working on hopefully in the next few weeks. So that is it, you guys, for this episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, as always, you can leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who's already done so. Um, I truly do appreciate it. I guess that's it. Just be safe. Be healthy. Hang in there. Uh, we're supposed to, at least in the Midwest, get six more weeks of winter, which sucks. So just waiting for spring. And that's it. I hope you guys have a great week. I hope you're having a great start to February. And M-O-O-N, that spells. I'll see you next week.